You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In a hundred small churches' Sunday school classrooms, on any given Sunday in any given year, you'll hear the senior citizens singing the same song, America has gone downhill since they were kids. Almost always the tale told is elegiac, and often the lament for a world lost goes along with the story of war, the culture war that Pat Buchanan proclaimed in 1992, and that a dozen ex-evangelical blogs will say that they're tired of. But what kind of war do we actually see when we turn on the evening news, and what kind of culture for that matter? Stephen Prothero's recent book, Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars, traces the roots of American culture wars to strong responses to the French Revolution not long after the start of the Republic and to deep contradictions in America's relationships with religion. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him to the show. Thank you for coming aboard, Stephen. Hey, it's fun to be with you. Very good. In your introduction, you lay down four central marks of a culture war as opposed to other and similar historical phenomena. They happen in public, that's number one. They concern a mixture of moral, religious, and cultural questions, that's number two. They have to do with the meaning of America and true Americans, number three. And number four, they tend to do their work in the medium of military metaphors. Now, that's what marks a culture war. What big classes of events do these criteria rule out as the matter for your investigation? Well, I think most obviously they rule out the other side of politics, what we think of as ordinary politics, the politics of taxing and spending, appropriations bills and things like that. Um, and I think to some extent they might even rule out certain fights over, over nationality, things like that. Uh, things, in other words, that we classically consider to be about power and politics or we consider to be about economics. They have to have some element where people are appealing to biblical truths or they're appealing to absolute morality and then somehow connecting those appeals to, uh, you know, that's not the country we live in or we should be living in a country that's more like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to set up the book's big picture a little bit more before we turn to particular historical moments. The big claim of your book, as I read it, is that culture wars go as far back as the 18th century and that theirs is a story of progressive inclusion that hits obstacles and which gets attacked, but ultimately wins out over the impulse to preserve dying ways of life. Now, why have you framed the story in those terms? Other folks have told the same story in terms of a sort of threatening, encroaching consumerist conformism, or they've told the story of sort of imperial enlightenment ideology why is it that the progress of inclusion was the story that you told? Well, I guess the conceit of the historian is because because I looked at it and that's what just kept coming out at me. Uh, I was surprised by I was surprised by a lot of the things that I found. I mean, I live in Massachusetts, and I'm surrounded by liberal friends who have a sense of being besieged by conservative Christians who are trying to take their country away from them um, and who are trying to impose their religion on, on, the, on the values that my Massachusetts liberal friends hold dear around, say, uh, gay marriage. So um, I didn't really expect to find liberal 
liberals winning the culture wars as much as I did. I really was trying to make sense of a country that was coming up with so much opposition on the right to the Ground Zero mosque uh, controversy of a few years ago. That's really what, what kicked me in. It seemed like if you had this gentleman in lower Manhattan who owned a building and he was a Muslim and he wanted to turn it into an Islamic community center, it seemed like conservative values of religious liberty and private property rights would just give an obvious thumbs up to that project. So I was kind of confused by that, and I wanted to understand historically how we as a country got to this point where mainstream Republican figures were opposing that mosque. And that took me back to the culture wars of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and abortion, and back through that to into uh, Prohibition era and even back farther to uh, the elections between John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson. So I think, I guess I would just say that the story that popped out at me was this story of conservatives starting and liberals winning, and it popped out at me because I just kept seeing that, uh, seeing that replayed. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, the story that you tell of conservatism begins in France, and honestly, I just wanted to say that to bug people. Uh, but as, as the French Revolution becomes the occasion both for radical enlightenment writing and the most famous work of Edmund Burke, who is arguably, and I think you argue this in the book, the father of modern conservatism, in America, the tension between British and French models of modernity make the 1796 and 1800 elections affairs that would have made Karl Rove proud. Tell us about some of these early partisan exchanges in Washington politics. Well, it's funny how the job of the historian often is when people at a cocktail party say, oh my gosh, I can't believe how nasty it's been. This is the worst election ever. And then the historian gets to say, actually, election 1800 was worse, you know, or, oh, these culture wars are so disgusting. You know, we used to be such a more placid nation where we got along with one another. Well, not exactly. So, um, so that's part of what's going on here. But the election of, of 1800 and also the election of 1796, they were both pitting John Adams against Jefferson. And Adams ended up winning the first one, and Jefferson, in a squeaker, really a tie, literally a tie, um, ended up winning the second one. And there were a lot of things going on. I mean, there were two visions of America. One on the side of the Federalists was more uh, commercial, more northern, more conservative. Uh, favored central bank, uh, sidled up more to England than to France. And on the other side, the Jeffersonians, you had a vision of America that was uh, more agricultural, uh, that was more uh, aligned with the French, and that was more southern. It's interesting that we have, in this case, the, the more liberal side, the Jeffersonian side in the south, the more conservative side in the north, whereas our politics now has has flipped around in that regard. And, and even beyond that, you've got the conservatives being the city folk and the liberals yes. being the farmers. <laughs> yes. And you have the liberals uh, favoring limited government, and you have the uh, conservatives favoring strong central government. So all these things we think of as kind of tags for liberals or conservatives kind of switch, switch over time. Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln has this interesting uh, metaphor about two two politicians just really dusting it up and getting into a fight and all of a sudden they're in the mud and they're literally tearing off each other's shirts and they finally get up out of the fight and they're, they have each other's garments on and 
at, to illustrate this idea of, you know, the parties shifting from one position to another, like we've seen in my lifetime with Romney Care, Obamacare, for example, that was considered to be a conservative project, uh, Romney Care, that was, you know, um, really fostered in conservative think tanks in D.C., and then all of a sudden it gets to be seen as this liberal project. But but back to uh, the election of 1800 and the election of uh, 1796. So those elections were about the future of America, and they were about what I would call ordinary politics in certain of their elements. You know, whether we should have a central strong central bank isn't really a culture war question. But where the culture wars really came in had to do with Jefferson's religion. And Jefferson was a weird sort of person religiously. He may have been the most theologically astute president we ever had. He was in some ways obsessed with theology. He read it a lot. He knew a lot about Calvinism. He knew a lot about the Bible. Uh, he created his own Bible while he was uh, president that is now at the Smithsonian's National uh, Museum of American History. And about what you've written in a previous book. I have written about that in my American <laughs> Jesus book. That's right. Uh, and he uh, and Jefferson did a cut and paste job where he he said, well, of course, you know, Jesus wouldn't have believed in these crazy miracles, and of course, he wasn't raised from the dead. So, just cut those parts out and left this image of Jesus as a as a great moral uh, teacher. But that was private in his lifetime. That didn't come out in public. So, so much of Jefferson's religion was innuendo and an accusation. But people were really afraid in the North, especially the Federalist Congregationalist ministers, that Jefferson was going to create something like a, a French reign of terror against uh, religion. And um, they were really fearful of the direction of the country and of electing someone they saw as maybe an atheist, maybe an infidel, maybe a Jew. And in one really intriguing passage from a Federalist newspaper, the Connecticut Current, there were accusations that he was a secret Muslim, a believer, as they said, in the Al-Quran. So mm -hmm. Obama was not the first president to be accused of being a secret Muslim. <laughs> and uh, I think the way that culture war played out is that uh, Jefferson, you know, won, I mean, Jefferson's side won the election. It ended up being a tie because the Democratic-Republican Party of Jefferson kind of forgot to uh, leave one vote aside with, for Aaron Burr to become the vice president. And so the election was thrown uh, into Congress, and that was controlled by the Federalists. And I think there were 35 ballots before Jefferson finally became president. Mm. But the consensus we came to out of that conflict was that you didn't really have to be an evangelical or even a, a, a Christian to be to be president. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating too because our, our listeners who listen to the Christian Humanist podcast, another one of our shows. Uh, know that we did a an episode on the letters that Adams and Jefferson ex, uh, exchanged in their old age, and neither yeah. one of them had any time for the Trinity. <laughs> so it, it's just right. fascinating that only one of them ended yes. up on the wrong side of these innuendos. Yes, because, right, I mean, there really wasn't much difference. I mean, Adams was a shade more traditionally Christian than, than Jefferson, but Adams was a deist, and Adams was maybe a Unitarian. He didn't really believe in the divinity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. By no means was he, would he be considered a Christian in, in certainly most churches in the South, but even in, even probably in liberal Methodist congregations, he wouldn't be considered a, be considered a Christian nowadays. So yeah, there mm -hmm. really wasn't much difference there, but it was Jefferson who was really attacked on the religion front. Well, I want to talk about a word that I, I read in your book for the first time in many years, 
and that is anti-disestablishmentarianism. Uh, I, I learned it as a young man as the longest word in most dictionaries. But you make the case that John Adams held it as one of his conservative causes. Why did this anti-Trinitarian care about which states established what churches? Well, I think it's really funny you noticed that because it was kind of an inside joke to myself to include that word. I thought it was so ridiculous to include a word like that in a, in a book I was hoping would be addressed to general readers. But <laughs> it really was the right word in that sentence. And, uh, and I had learned it, too, as a kid. Like, oh, this is the longest word in the English language, you know. So I thought it would be fun, be fun to use it. But, yeah, there was, a, there was a real struggle at the beginning over the question of church and state and to what extent were we going to follow this European pattern of established churches uh, where people would be taxed and the money would go to pay for the ministers and there would be a, a kind of marriage of convenience between church and state. And on the other hand, Jefferson's radical idea of the, of the separation of church and state, which really hadn't been done before. And I think uh, there's a lot of confusion on both sides. You know, you have some, some conservative Christians nowadays who think we started as a Christian America and church and state were fused somehow. And then you have some more Jeffersonian types who imagine that Jefferson really won in all the you know, debates that were going on and that we had this really strict wall of separation. And the truth is we had neither, that we kind of muddled through. And in fact, the muddling through and the, and the compromises that came with the Constitution and the early Republic are one reason why we continue to fight about religion, because we never got any really clear marching orders. We, we didn't have a religious test for the presidency. That was a big issue in the election of 1800. Um, in other words, you didn't have to be believe in Jesus or even believe in God in order to be, to be president. But at the same time, we had funding for, uh, for military chaplains. We had prayers before the opening, opening sessions of Congress. You know, presidents would declare uh, days of fasting and uh, thanksgiving and prayer. So there was a certain presence of a kind of generic Christianity in the public space uh, at the same time that we were set up sort of officially and formally as a secular country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to turn to the next big culture war that you talk about. Not, not too long after the so-called Revolution of 1800, armies of Irish immigrants became the enemy that nativists feared most. What did those 19th century nativists mean when they claimed that protecting religious freedom meant suppressing Catholicism? It's so interesting how these arguments work, you know, and it's happening today, too, with, you know, that, that um, pushing back against Islam is a way to protect our religious liberty, because if Muslims are allowed to get Sharia law, they're going to take away our religious liberty. It's the exact same argument that basically Catholics didn't believe in the separation of church and state. Catholics believed that priests and popes should impose their views on ordinary people. And so those ordinary people would then vote the way the Pope uh, told them to vote. So if we wanted to preserve American liberty, American freedom, the tradition of the revolution, we couldn't allow people to be Catholics here because Catholicism was, um, you know, against American constitutional values, something that we heard Ben Carson say in this election cycle about Islam being antithetical to American constitutional values. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was really interesting how the anti-Catholicism in a way pushed 
the more Jeffersonian understanding of the separation of church and state, that that's what America was about, because it was that libertarian religious liberty position that, in, uh, for some people at least, uh, pushed them to be, uh, to be, anti, to be anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, because it doesn't begin, that argument doesn't begin in America by any means. I mean, John Milton wrote the same in Areopagitica. You know, John yeah. Locke, at the very least, hints at it in on re- religious toleration. Um, I mean, uh, and you uh, see it also, in, you see it in Adams and Jefferson. They're both oh, anti-Catholic. there you go. Okay. And they, they're both anti-Catholic, and they, and they see Catholicism as a threat to liberty. Oh, fascinating. Okay, and see, I, I actually hadn't realized that last bit, so... Um, one of this book's strongest features, I think, is this idea that you've already nodded to uh, that, well, I mean, I'll just go ahead and quote from the book. This is from page 71. American politics has never been as godless as the Constitution or as religiously neutral. Close quote. Now, what tendencies in American culture or even political life more generally have kept us from grasping the complexity of that picture? Well, you know, we started with a lot of influence from the Enlightenment, and, and among that was the desire to avoid wars of religion by somehow separating church and state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was very strong. I mean, I, I disagree with people who think a lot of the Founding Fathers were born again Christians. So that's not true. Deism was very strong again, uh, among them, a kind of, some kind of Enlightenment, generic Enlightenment religion goes mm-hmm. under, often under the banner of deism, was really dominant. But then we had a society that was very deeply Christian for most of the time before that and most of the time after that. There was, there was kind of a weird little blip in American society that happened to be the time when we founded the country, where we had this more secular you know, perspective on things among intellectuals. So very quickly, you know, you have, I mean, one way to think about it is you have a country that's, you know, secular by law, but Christian by choice. You know, people are choosing to be Christians in part because they have the religious liberty to choose to be what they, what they want to be. So there's always been a tension there between, uh, you know, the secular language that you find in the Constitution or the lack of God language you find in the Constitution, mm-hmm. the refusal to establish any particular religion, and then the fact that Americans want to bring religious reasons, religious arguments into the public space and they want to elect you know, Christian people. Mm-hmm. And, and we continue to see that today with, uh, you know, the appeals that, that Cruz and Trump are making in Iowa to, uh, to evangelical, evangelical Christians and then people sort of crying foul and saying, why are we doing this? You know, this isn't a contest for preacher-in-chief. You know, this is a contest for commander-in-chief. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, just because, and I, I, I really hadn't thought about this very long until I was reading your book, that the structure of Article 6 of the Constitution says that the structure of the federal government can't bar anyone from federal office because of religion. But there's also nothing in there that says that the public can't vote exclusively for Christians. So, I mean, right there, I mean, there, there's a contradiction there in the structure of things that I hadn't really considered before. Um, you know, the argument in your book is that, you know, the, the tendency of history, if you will, uh, is to return to that blip that you just described, uh, that in spite of what came before and in spite of what arises after, that the return to that constitution seems to be the tendency that the country takes. 
do you want to speculate on why that is, or do you want to leave that to the mysteries of history, Ben? Well, I think that that's, I, I think, you know, when you ask, you know, when, when you ask the question, like, why do liberals tend to win these culture wars? Why do mm-hmm. we tend toward greater inclusiveness in the American family rather than exclusiveness? You know, why do the, why, why do the, the monoculturalists who want, have a kind of we are America vision, uh, why do they tend to lose? Whereas the multiculturalists who have a, a more capacious understanding of the we, um, tend to, you know, tend to win. I think the constitution is part of it. You know, we have a bill of rights that says liberty, 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 freedom over and over again. So I think that's part of it. We take the constitution seriously enough and that pushes us toward, toward more, uh, toward more inclusion. I think that that's, I think that that's a piece of it. Um, I think another piece is that, you know, Christianity, uh, has also changed. It isn't that we just have fundamentalists or Christians in the United States. We, we have lib- a lot of liberal Christians who think that it's, that, you know, what would Jesus do when faced with a, a gay couple? You know, would he, would he spit at them or would he, would he embrace them? You know, and I think a lot of people feel that he would embrace them. And we made the similar decision about, about slavery, you know, that through the influence of Uncle Tom's Cabin novel, among others, that, that this was just not a Christian practice. It just wasn't. It really didn't matter exactly what the Bible said when it uses the word slave. What really mattered was Jesus would not have would not have allowed this. So, so it isn't just a reliance on constitutionalism of the sort. It's also uh, a shifting understanding of Christianity that, um, you know, at least has many people. Um, certainly not all Americans, but has many people um, having a, a more capacious understanding of you know who who are our our um our friends and, and a, a narrow understanding of who are our enemies okay well one of the other long narratives of exclusion giving way to assimilation stars the latter-day saints and i'm going to pause here and say that when i was growing up the people around me insisted that referring to latter-day saints as mormons was rude i know that they've got the ad campaign that says i'm a mormon i still can't say it um <laughs> So right, you'll have I'll to forgive. You. You'll, you'll yeah, have you to can, forgive me for that. So you can call them saints or whatever, however you want to refer. To yeah, them. and like I said, it is just you know the habit of you know having Latter Day Saints. There I go again. Friends, growing yep. up, and you know, you don't call them Mormons. That'd be rude. Uh, but yeah. let, let's get back to your book here. <laughs> um, <laughs> how did changed, you know? As you know, it's changed, and Mormons refer to themselves as Mormons now. So. I, I know, and I, and, I, and I haven't yeah. caught up, Stephen. I haven't caught up, so I apologize <laughs> for that. So yeah, how did Latter-day Saint responses to Protestant America mark theirs as a story distinct from the Catholics as opposed to merely yeah. a repetition of the German and the Irish situation? Right. Well, there's a lot of parallels, obviously. Uh, one of them, intriguingly, is that um, you know, there's a lot of language of slavery about how you know they're going. They're, they're you know going to enslave us. The Catholics are going to enslave us. So the Mormons are enslaving their their many wives. But one difference is that that there aren't a lot of Catholic. There's not a ton of Catholic pushback. You know you have some examples, like this guy Bishop Dagger John Hughes, mm-hmm. um, who who when asked, you know, we hear there's a conspiracy to uh, take over the country by Catholics. You know they're going to start in the Midwest. I'm going to spread and take over the whole whole uh, continent. And Hughes, instead of saying the politics thing, like, of course, no, we're not doing that. We're just trying to be good Americans. 
He said, of course we have a conspiracy to take over. He said, it's not a conspiracy, you know. We want everybody to be Catholic. You know, Catholicism is the true religion. That's, that's religion started by Jesus. So, um, the, you know, he had examples of that confrontation, but in general, Catholics were really trying to be more um, quietly make their way into the American mainstream, whereas Mormons had a more of a fighting spirit themselves. So it was a culture war that, in a way, had, um, had an, an enthusiastic partner on the inclusion side in Mormons, even though Mormons didn't have a lot of support uh, from non-Mormons. Uh, interestingly, one group that did support Mormons early on were Southern slaveholders, and um, Stephen Douglas, the famous participant in the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, in Illinois, he was a supporter of the Mormons early on. And one of the reasons was is that there was a fear that if the federal government moved against polygamy, which was a family matter, that they might also move against slavery, which is a family matter. And so the idea was to be libertarian about all that and just leave, uh, leave that up to individual family members to decide how they wanted to organize their, organize their lives. So that was one piece. There was, there was more Mormon pushback uh, that there was, uh, than there was with, um, with Catholicism. Um, there was also, you know, a different kind of sexual practice that was scandalous with with Roman Catholics, it was celibacy and accusations that the priests weren't actually celibate and that mm-hmm. what was going on in these secret convents was these nuns were being held captive and they were being raped by these priests and then their babies were being killed and infanticide. Those were the sexual fantasies there. With the Mormons, of course, it was polygamy and the, uh, the fight against polygamy. But there, uh, to read the debates is really fascinating because... You know, because there's certain parallels to the slavery, de- slavery debate, but the Bible, the Mormons had the good side of the Bible. I mean, if you read the Bible, you know, what patriarch, you know, in the Old Testament has only one wife? I mean, you know, patriarchs are polygamists. And you know, if you read even Martin Luther on, on polygamy, Martin Luther wrote in favor of polygamy because he believed Scripture was the only authority. And uh, when he read Scripture, he saw that God sanctioned polygamy in the Old Testament. So, um, so they had the best side of that argument, the biblical argument, and so the argument that Eastern uh, critics and uh, Protestants had to make of Mormon, Mormon polygamy really had to do more with, more with kind of commonsensical disgust and things like that, and also with sexism, and mm-hmm. less to do with, with the Bible. Well, and, and your reference to Eastern critics, I mean, brings up another interesting dynamic of this moment that you have Southerners who are conservative on certain questions in favor of the Latter-day Saints and Northerners, which are conservative on other questions, strongly opposing the Latter-day Saints, even as they respond to each other on, on various dimensions that you could call Protestant or liberal let me go ahead and pose this question to you. I mean, as you spin out these stories, what were your sort of operative criteria? And I'm, I'm, you know, I don't expect you to have a list written down, although if you do, that would be great. But what was your general process for naming a historical phenomenon, a conservative one or a liberal one? Yeah, so that was really tricky because, you know, okay, so in my story, Catholics are liberals, right? But then yes. Catholics, we don't really think Catholics are liberals. We also don't think of Mormons as liberals. Right, Even right. though in my story, the argument for <laughs> right. them... Right, Romney, Scalia, American, we know these names. 
Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> there's, there's, and also I think in some ways the prohibition story is even more curious because prohibition was really driven by a fascinating combination of what I would call culturally conservative and culturally uh, liberal uh, mm-hmm. impulses. You know, there was the concern, the more liberal concern of protecting, you know, wise and innocent children mm-hmm. against the craziness of their husbands who would just go drink away their their paychecks in the saloon and put their families at risk. And then there was, the, then there was the, you know, the imposition of Christian morality uh, onto the public uh, that we think of as kind of classically, you know, culturally conservative move that was going that was going on there. So, so it was tricky. But the argument I make in the book, and I I really did wrestle with this. The argument mm-hmm. I make in the book is that conservatism, you know, you can see conservatism in ways that others do as, okay, it's about states' rights, or it's about lim- limited government, or it's about free markets. You know, you can come up with these ideas, but the, conservat- the consistent conservatism that I see, and, and this is looking more at the cultural side, what we might call cultural conservatism, is, is this uh, element that you, you conjured up, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, that, that something precious is being lost, some form of culture, some way of life, is going away and it's worth reviving it's worth fighting to revive and we need to restore it I think that's the key to me and that that simple definition really lines up pretty well with all the conservative characters in the book and then similarly on the liberal side it's people who are not so nostalgic about former ways of life who are actually eager to enter into new forms of culture, into new forms of life, and to include more and more people into a pluralistic American society. So the conservative impulse to, to move to an analogy from physics is a kind of centripetal impulse where, where the force is moving inward toward a more homogenous society of like-minded people. And the liberal impulse culturally is a more centripetal uh, sorry, centrifugal impulse. There you go. Very good. Spinning, <laughs> yes, that's spinning out, and um, and creating new forms of culture that we can thrill in and be so delighted that great. Now we have, you know, new forms of dancing in the 1920s, and now we have this, you know, fascinating new religion of Mormonism. Isn't that great? Doesn't that make America richer? As opposed to the the feeling that somehow uh, things are being taken away, and we see it the same with, you know, black president. You know, is that or a woman president, you know, is that something that we should love and see as this wonderful example of, of a, you know, multi-gendered, uh, multi-religious, you know, multicultural society, or do we see that as some sort of decline from, from uh, the good old days when uh, we all knew, you know, we all felt at home in our in our hometowns, at sitting at the counter at Woolworths, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. how I that's how I read it. I think the key is that I. My definitions of liberal and conservative are cultural rather than more broadly political. Okay. All right. And there's another wrinkle to it, and this is another idea that I see mainly in the latter half of the book, but uh, it really really runs all the way through. But it's that sometimes liberal rhetoric gets appropriated to advance conservative causes. So turning back to the Latter-day Saints for a moment, tell our listeners a little bit about how liberal rhetoric comes to play in the anti-Latter-day Saint cause? Well, it, it works in a parallel way to the Catholic one. You know, that 
if you give these people liberty, you know, if you give these people liberty, um, they're going to uh, use that liberty to restrict our liberty, you know, um, and, and we can't let that happen. They're going to use their liberty to restrict the liberty of their many wives, you know, to whom they're, to whom they're married. Um, so I think that that move, that kind of interesting, uh, seemingly contradictory move about uh, religious liberty plays out. I mean, we also hear, oh, uh, Mormons and Catholics aren't really, those aren't really religions. Like, of course, we have First Amendment religion protection. But the, Mormonism is really a business scheme. It's a scheme mm. to make a lot of money for rich people in, in Utah, like Brigham Young, uh, the Mormon president. Uh, or uh, it's really a political scheme. You know, it's a way to create a theocracy you know, out in the Utah Territory. It's not really a religion. The religion is a, is a false veneer. And, and that went back to the very beginning of Mormonism, where the main arguments were, it's a fake prophet and a fake book. Mm-hmm. So this idea of fakering and con is there really throughout the history of anti-Mormonism. Okay, well, another thought just occurred to me, and, and this is kind of off the beaten path, so if you want to turn back to the book, just tell me and we can, but it strikes me that the story that you just now told, if you substitute Utah for Kansas, you've basically got Thomas Frank's book, What's Wrong with Kansas? What, what kinds yeah. of differences are there between those two scenarios? Because I have a sense that they are different scenarios. Well, the Thomas Frank, you know, I, I deal with, with um, Frank's book in my book by, you know, one of my criticisms of it is that it sort of sees uh, religious people and it sees religious people and moral uh, disputes as epiphenomenal, you know, as like not really the real thing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think what, what carries over is kind of the idea of the con, you know, I mean, uh, Thomas Frank is this idea that, you know, culture wars are kind of a con where the Republican party convinces you to get in their party and vote for their people because of the abortion question. And then once you get in their party and, and elect their people, they just lower taxes for rich people. And, and they're kind of laughing all the way to the bank that these rubes, have gone along with, you know, their scam. Um, mm-hmm. I, have, I have no doubt that that happens sometimes with uh, political operatives. Uh, I don't have a much higher view of political animals than other Americans do. But um, I also think that a lot of people actually do care more about religion and ethics and morality than they do about politics. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they're, very, they're very aware that the Republican Party might be working against their economic interests, but they don't care because the Republican Party is the party that's going to fight against abortion, and they don't want to have innocent babies being, you know, killed. So, um, so I have a slightly different understanding, and I think that's, you know, I mean, I'm a religious studies person, so religious studies professor, so I take religious people's religious convictions seriously, and I don't tend to dismiss them as something else, whereas some you know, political scientists and other writers tend to think that religion is really, you know, is kind of an empty category and it's waiting there to be manipulated, you know, for other purposes. Okay. Well, I want to turn to your prohibition chapter. You note in that chapter that anti-prohibition advocates often appealed to human nature as the supreme reason why prohibition was doing more harm than good. Uh, what marks these liberal uses of that concept, human nature, 
as distinct from more recent conservatives frequent use of that term human nature and their nearly as frequent accusation that liberals ignore human nature in favor of sort of a statist ideology <laughs> such a great question oh thank you wow what a great question um yeah i don't know i don't know how to unpack that i mean in the prohibition debate it really is interesting how you know it's like we can't do this i mean people are going to drink you know they're just going to drink Mm -hmm. And and all this and, and and that's how humans are. Let's not try to make them something other. Let's not pretend there's something other than it. You know, and that is a classic conservative argument, right? That that the government needs to do what what it can do, and it needs to it needs to assume sin. I mean, to use Christian language, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, humans are sinners. We're not making utopias here. And the difference between you know Democrats and Republicans is that Republicans. No, not to make utopias. I mean, that's supposed to be the classic division, right? That's the mm -hmm. classic critique of Marxism, by the right, way. Right, according to some conservative uh, arguments, certainly. Yeah, yeah. But now we live in this, you know, in this intriguing era where we're almost it's flipped around, where you know Hillary Clinton is kind of the pragmatist who's really not trying to make a utopia, and then the Republican candidates are the ones who are offering the utopia, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's really, really interesting. I hadn't really connected that until yeah. you asked the question. Well, and but on some questions, but not others, because when it comes to gun control, the conservative accusation is al almost always and almost instantly, you know, right. you can't simply take away weapons and create a utopia. Yes, yes, right. It's, it's guns don't kill people, sinners kill people, right? I mean, that isn't the language they use, but that's the concept. Right, the concept yeah, is there, yeah. I think that's right. And then, you know, that it does uh, become what we now think of as a kind of conservative argument at the time of repeal. We just need to get the government out of this game of trying to make human beings better. You know, mm -hmm. humans are going to drink and we need to just regulate it and tax it and get the tax revenues and pass laws about how old people can be when they drink, et cetera, et cetera. But we, uh, we can't try to make this, you know, place, uh, 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 perfect, and w in trying to make it perfect, we've opened our way to all these horrors like organized crime and, you know, lack of respect for the rule of law and all these kinds of things that come along, come come along with prohibition. Mm -hmm. Well, like I said before, and I, I want to be clear about this. I mean, I think that your exploration and your confrontation of the contradictions is a strong suit of your book. I don't think that's a flaw at all. I think that being aware of those uh, of those uh, contradictions and refusing to pretend that they're not there is really what makes this book as good as it is. So please don't think that I'm playing gotcha here. No, 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 thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Well, I, I want to do another contradiction here because you compare two stories of backlash in this book, and in one case you relate the drinking public's refusal to take prohibition seriously and they go up to and beyond the lines of violent crime to get their booze. And in another one, you note that white Southerners hold desegregation in a sort of contempt, and they wage legal battles that, I mean, go up to at least last week, if my Twitter feed doesn't lie, to maintain control of their private schools. So again, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the matter of categories and criteria here. What makes one instance of local resistance to national morality liberal and the other one conservative. Well, see, again, I'd go back to, to, to my understanding of inclusivism and exclusivism. Okay. You know, so 
So I think, uh, because I agree. I mean, you know, the, earlier when we were talking about, you know, what's conservative, well, small government is one thing we tend to think about. Well, you know, when we start to regulate alcohol and when we start to regulate abortion and we start to regulate these things where we say the government's going to come in and tell, t- take away your liberty or to take away your freedom to do something, you know, um, that's where conservatives want the government in on abortion, but they don't want the government in on guns, right? So, mm-hmm. so this contradictions, you know, a plenty on that, and not not just on the right, but uh, but also on the left. But for me, you know, in thinking about you know prohibition and anti-abortion, I think again, I mean, sorry, uh, it was prohibition and what was the and uh, desegregation and desegregation, right? The segregation academies, right? The the effort to do an end run around Ralph Board of Education by effectively turning some of these public schools. Right, and I live in Georgia, so I know that that, I mean, I, I <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I see these places. <laughs> yeah. So for me, so for me, the key is, you know, are you trying to, you know, create a country where you're enforcing a kind of monoculture, uh, you know, or are you, in, are you trying to create like multiculture? So, so a, a, an important element of the prohibition, you know, d- debate is it has anti-Catholic impulses behind it. You know that mm-hmm. that it's the Catholics are the drunkards, they're the Irish, and they work in class, and they go to the saloons, and then the saloons are owned by the Germans, and the beer is made by the German Americans, and and so there's really there's an ethnic and and uh, even racial and then religious component to that where we want Protestant America, and Protestant America is about being sober and being you know temperate. Uh, if you go back and look at Puritan, uh, you know, funeral bills, you'll see the overwhelming majority of those bills was to pay for booze. It wasn't like Puritans. The, the early Protestants in America didn't drink. There was more beer on the Mayflower than there was water on the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the, you know, that said, I, I see that as a kind of the anti-Catholic impulse there, that's trying to enforce a kind of you know, monoculture, whereas. Whereas in the um, desegregation debate, you know, the the side of the angels, as I see it, or the side of the liberal angels, is saying, you know, no, we need to have a, a culture that's, you know, open to the education of, you know, white people as well as black people, rather than to be lamenting the loss of our white Christian dominance. Mm-hmm. Very good. I'm going to take a self-indulgent turn here uh, and ask you about a book that I find fascinating and that you dedicate some space to, so I'm... I'm partly justified. And that book is Alan Bloom's uh, The Closing of the American Mind. Now, I, I know that Bloom himself was a lifelong Democrat, never self-identified as a conservative, and yet you're right that this book is like catnip to conservatives, and liberals hate it. What's going on with this book, and what place does it have in your story? Well, that whole debate about the canon mm-hmm. is really is really interesting, and it continues today with the Common Core discussion, because you do see such side flipping there. And you know, two of the two of the main figures in the book in the Cannon Wars there are you know E.D. Hirsch, who was a Democrat, who made uh, the argument in his cultural literacy book that we needed to spread these basic terms of cultural literacy to you know, poor black people because they're being excluded from the success story by the fact that they don't know what some of these key terms are. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they've never heard of James Madison. You know, if they had heard more of James Madison, maybe they'd have a better job. 
So his impulse was totally progressive. He got slammed into the cultural side of the debate, and the same with the same with Bloom. You know, um, and yeah, Bloom is a little more of a trickier character because he definitely kind of gloried in his own, you know, elitism. Mm-hmm. Um, but but part of what's going on there too is is the way that liberalism and and conservatism are also shifting around in this period where it used to be it used to be liberal to argue for a kind of you know common uh, common core to talk about our common humanity and it was conservative to want to preserve uh, traditional cultures traditional form of culture and then in in these debates kind of shifted around where you know the common core people uh, like, you know, Hirsch and Bloom and uh, Bennett, you know, the Secretary of Education mm-hmm. um, under Reagan, were pushing for this, hey, we need this common core. And then the left, which now was shifting away from Enlightenment stuff toward more identity politics, was saying, wait, no, we want blacks, we want, you know, Hispanics in the canon, we want feminists in the canon, right? And... Uh, so you, you, you see some of these figures who are classic old-line liberals lining up with the new conservatives on these questions. And then we get a flip now where I don't even know exactly how it happened, but within the last five years, the common core has become this horrible thing that conservatives you know, love to hate when they're running for president in the mm-hmm. Republican primaries. Um, and uh, I think that has to do with the imposition of the federal government on local you know, school boards. But, but, you know, that used to, under Reagan, that's what you wanted. That's what the Secretary of Education was pushing for, William Bennett. That's part of what made him a conservative. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is another example of these stories that um, are kind of hard to track. And I think some, you know, some people would say, okay, why do I even try to use these terms, liberal and conservative, in the book? Because there's so much switching about. But I think that the, I think... I think it's important to be able to track a story, to be able to use some broad terms like that, um, even though there's a certain peril in, in uh, using them. But I also think that there is a continuity uh, on this cultural side with the kind of inclusivism, exclusivism um, categories that I use in the book. Okay, very good. I want our listeners to hear you comment specifically about the Internet a little bit. The uh, Facebook-era Internet doesn't get all that much space in your book. And yet I see you personally weighing in on Facebook in particular with some frequency. Uh, sometimes about a deflate gate, says your interviewer from central Indiana. <laughs> now, when you set Internet social networks next to pamphlet printers and radio, what kind of technological revolution in this culture wars are we dealing with when we log on to Facebook or Twitter? Well, do you want to talk about uh, the Patriots and about deflated footballs? Because I'd be really I don't know that our listeners would stay on board. <laughs> okay, there is a kind of culture war going on about that in New England, at least. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think I go along with some of the consensus here about, you know, why do we have such political partisanship now? And you know, one of my mm-hmm. answers, of course, in the book is the culture wars produced that. And, and one thing that's happening now is that the MO of the culture wars has sort of jumped the tracks, and it, we now see it in the arena of ordinary politics. So we used to think, okay, there's two kinds of politics. There's the cultural politics. You can't negotiate because it's about the Bible. It's about absolute morality. Mm-hmm. Then there's other stuff like you know, marginal tax rates and appropriations for you know, um, you know, health care or whatever it might be. 
of course, we can negotiate on that. That's ordinary politics. But now, with partisanship has ramped up so much, now to you know ever as a conservative vote for something that Obama was in favor of, you just would never do that, right. no matter including Common Core. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so how does that happen? You know, well, there's a lot of theories. I mean, one of mine is that we've we've so the the, the culture wars have worked so well to get elected you know, culturally conservative uh, Republicans that they continue to go to that well and they have to kind of out, out anger each other in their own state, you know, elections to go to the right of the other guy and go become more of an Obama hater than the other guy that, um, that we just see this replicated. There's also the problem of the gerrymandering of districts where the districts are really made to, you know, keep a Republican or keep a Democrat for the next century. Um, based on the demographics, but the, the, to go to the social media, I think that there is this problem of, uh, you know, hanging out so much with like-minded people, right? So you, mm-hmm. you start to live in this world. I mean, it's very easy to live on, in a Facebook world now where Bernie Sanders is definitely going to be the next American president. <laughs> and he is yeah. totally, you know, and then you can also live in a Facebook world where, you know, President Obama is a Muslim and he's conspiring to take down the country and the only way, you know, to fix it is to elect Ted Cruz. And, and I, I even find, you know, some of my, you know, so-called friends on Facebook, they'll sometimes post some of these really hateful uh, things about Muslims, for example. And I just want to unfriend them and, you know, all that stuff. But then at the same time, I don't want to put myself in a bubble where I'm just listening to people with whom I agree. And I, I think mm-hmm. that... I do think that Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and social media do tend to foster that. And, uh, and I think that that's, a, that's sort of a, another piece along with the gerrymandering and along with the culture wars that's producing the partisanship we see today. Mm-hmm. How do you see it as, as sharing common ground with and how do you see it as departing from, for instance, the radio revolution in the 20th century or even inexpensive printing in the 18th? Yeah, I think uh, I'm not sure it's all that different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I think they all have to some extent contradictory effects, right? So you have the Reformation is being, you know, is moving forward in the 16th century because of inexpensive printing. So Martin Luther's able to get out these pamphlets to ordinary mm-hmm. Germans to read. Oh, and I wasn't even thinking of Luther. I was thinking of Tom Paine. Yeah, well, or paid, whatever, all those, right. So all those moments of inexpensive pamphleteering, mm-hmm. right, there's, there's a way in which that does create a common culture, that it, it isn't necessarily bifurc- bifurcation of culture, right? So if everybody's reading Tom Paine, I mean, this is true even of television. When I was younger, mm-hmm. you know, you could talk about the TV series Friends, and all of my students would have seen it. Right. We had a shared culture that people were all watching, and of course not everybody was watching Friends, but whatever it was, 80% of Americans were watching Friends at some point. That's not true anymore with television. You can be obsessed with a television show and mention it to a friend, and they might not even have ever heard of the show, mm-hmm. much less seen it. So that's the, split, the rise of cable TV. We're moving away from just three networks. There's all these different options, and then we can slot ourselves into our particular cable news show, right? We're going to watch Fox or we're going to watch MSNBC. So I think it depends on the prior. Radio is more like that, right? Because radio, radio um, is largely local. And so that can appeal to a local 
group rather than to be a, na- a kind of form of national culture. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. So in that sense, it's a little more like the Internet. The, 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 the ghettos you can find yourself in on the Internet where you're just with people like yourself. I think radio is a little more like that. National TV is, is, the, is the other side, whereas cable TV is also more like, <laughs> more like the Internet, I think, in its hmm. tendency to bifurcate the culture and push us into arenas of, with like-minded, like-minded people. So I think the tech can go in different directions. Um, I'm not sure how to think that quite through, but, uh, but I think it can go. I think in the case of pain, which I've argued in you know, prior books is, stands along with uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin as one of the two most influential books in American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those books both tend to create a kind of national consensus, um, at least in the North, in the case of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and they aren't directed to just a small group of people mm-hmm. in the way that some Internet you know, stuff is nowadays. Good, good. As we head towards the end here, I want you to talk about your appeal to liberals at the end of this book. Uh, your picture of American life paints conservatives as people dedicated to lost causes who have already lost before they start fighting. In the face of this seeming irrationality, why do you end your book with a criticism of partisan rancor and a call for liberals to forswear total war tactics in the culture wars? Because I find these culture wars kind of unseemly. I mean, I, uh, I recognize that in democracy there's a virtue of this, that we want to be argued with one another, and that where we have fundamental agreements, those arguments are going to get heated. So on one level, looking at this rather sordid history of the culture wars um, is depressing and dispiriting, but on another level it's just an illustration of a functioning... A, well-functioning democracy. But I think that democracy works best when we have, you know, arguments rather than wars with one another. Um, and so, you know, I, I would prefer to see a dialing back of the rhetoric, you know, to see a Congress that can function through, with some kind of, you know, negotiation and compromise on both sides. Um, you know, I don't like the way the battle over gay rights and, and and religious liberty has started to make religious liberty look like a right-wing conspiracy to undermine gay people. You know, that's the way a lot of my friends, my liberal friends in New England, um, look at it. So um, I think there's a peril there to the principle of religious liberty, which I value, you know, very highly. So I don't know, maybe I'm contradicting myself, but um, but I, I feel that... Uh, you know, even though conservatives start the culture wars and largely prosecute them, you know, uh, there's a point where when the, when the war uh, closes down, starts to close down, and the liberals are clearly winning, there's a point where they can just push and push and push for more and more. Um, and, and there's a point where they can just be glad that they won and move on and try to sort of heal the country. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of language we got from Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural after he was elected when he said, you know, um, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. Uh, and uh, it's that kind of more erratic spirit that I think is, you know, it's, it's the language of Lincoln, you know, in the midst of the Civil War, mm-hmm. trying to say, you know, we should, uh, we are not enemies, we should be friends. 
You know, um, that, that you don't you don't hear that very often from statesmen anymore. And I guess I'd like to hear it more often. I, I don't disagree with you there. Well, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about liberals, conservatives, culture wars, Donald Trump, or anything else do you want our listeners thinking about as we finish up? Well, I think, I think, uh, you know, I hope that my book is an example of how history can help illuminate the present. Because I think it can be confusing what's going on now with the culture wars and what's going on with this election. And it can also feel a little scary for people who aren't in the Trump camp or aren't in the Cruz camp. You know, is our country really going to elect someone who, you know, calls Mexicans rapists and, you know, doesn't want any Muslims to come into the country? Is that what this country is all about? You know, I think that that can feel a little um, dangerous. And, you know, the spirit of my book is to say, well, look, um, you know, we've survived these before. And uh, things have actually been worse before. You know, the culture war against Mormons was much worse than the culture war is today against, against Muslims. And uh, the rancor in the election of 1800 was worse than the rancor in, in the election of 2016. Um, and then the other hopeful note that I try to end the book with is the fact that the co- conflict does lead to some consensus. You know, that after we go through these culture wars, even though culture wars themselves seem to continue spinning, uh, individual cultural battles end, you know, and we're not still fighting the Catholicism culture war. We're not still fighting the Mormonism culture war. We have, it's now an American value to, to embrace Catholics and Mormons as, you know, equal Americans alongside the rest of us. Uh, so, you know, I'm hopeful that that's going to continue to be the arc of these stories. And, you know, you never know, but my sense is, is that that's where we're, that's where we're we're headed. So I'm maybe a little more optimistic about things than for having done this history than I was when I started. Stephen Prothero, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, good. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. Uh, the book is Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars Even When They Lose Elections from Harper One. Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.